You're listening to LeMay's Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Carter McNish. On March 11, 1945, Americans tuned in to their daily dose of war news over the radio. The Army Hour, produced by NBC. This is Major Ted Steele with the 20th Air Force on Guam, and here is the air commander who planned and directed the devastating B-29 fire raids over Japan this weekend, Commanding General of the 21st Bomber Command, Major General Curtis E. LeMay. Ever since the first report of bombs away over Tokyo some 48 hours ago, I have been receiving additional information on the results of our incendiary strike against Japan. The results have all been good. 9,700 acres of urban Tokyo are now twisted, gutted rubble. Hundreds of war business establishments, many important administrative buildings, and thousands of home industries were burned down in the 15 square miles where the fire blazed hottest. Among the targets lying in ruins are the Oeno Railroad Station, which we have hit before, the Rising Sun Petroleum Terminal, the Ogura Oil Company, the Nishim Spinning Mill, Japan Machine Industry, the Murinuchi Telephone Exchange, Kanda Market, and many other keystones of Tokyo's commercial and industrial life. To get a clearer picture of what this means, let's make a comparison with one or two principal American cities. Our fire raid on Tokyo burned down an area roughly equal to all of downtown Manhattan in New York, with a large portion of the Brooklyn waterfront and congested urban sections thrown in. The B-29s devastated a region as large as the main government building area in Washington, D.C., plus much of Georgetown, too. You can work it out for your own city or town if you picture it lying in ruins with an area more than 100 blocks long and more than 40 blocks wide, nearly 10,000 acres of destruction. As you have heard or read by now, more than 300 B-29s of the 21st Bomber Command took part in this mission. They came from all three of our Mariana bases, from Saipan, from Tinian, and from Guam. This was the largest force we have yet put into the air against the Jap Empire. Naturally, we are feeling pretty good about this mission, its size and its results. But there is one thing I want to emphasize, and that is that we are still a long way from the attainment of our full striking force. The 21st Bomber Command has been operating against Japan from the Marianas for just a little more than three months, about 100 days. In this last mission to Tokyo, we hit the Jap with more than three times as many B-29s as we had over the Empire in our first strike, last Thanksgiving. This is what I would call encouraging growth. You can be sure, and the Japs can be sure, we intend to keep it up. When General Arnold sent me to assume command here in January, I promised to increase the tonnage of bombs dropped on Japan. If the Japs persist in keeping on with this war, I now promise that they have nothing to look forward to except the complete destruction of their cities. As commander of the air crew members who fly and fight these missions, and the men on the ground whose work makes these strikes possible, I have something else to say at this time. I think the best way to say it is to read you a message I sent today to every member of this command. Your determination, skill, and guts have delivered a stunning blow to the Empire of the Rising Sun. You took to the enemy and dumped upon him the greatest bomb load ever carried over great distances. Today, over 15 square miles of his capital is in smoking ruins and is ravaged still by burning fires. I heartily commend the commanders, the combat crews, and the hard-working maintenance and staff people on their accomplishments on this historic operation. The enemy has been hit hard, but needs more treatment. I enjoin all personnel to demonstrate continuously the fighting spirit which made this mission successful. Welcome to Episode 3 of LeMay's Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, a seven-part documentary series covering the last months of World War II in the Pacific Theater. Previously, we have discussed the development of the B-29 Superfortress Bomber, the capture and construction of their new bases in China and the Mariana Islands, their first combat missions over Japan, MacArthur's invasion of Leyte, the resulting Battle of Leyte Gulf, and the subsequent invasions of Luzon and Iwo Jima. The two roads to Tokyo, one by air and the other by sea, are beginning to close in on their prize. Today, we discuss Curtis LeMay's arrival in the Marianas, the beginning of the firebombing campaign in Japan, and the deadliest night in human history, the night of March 9th and 10th, 1945, the night that Tokyo burned.
November 1944. General Haywood Hansel, commander of the 21st Bomber Command, had just begun the air war against Japan from the Marianas. Having proved that he could strike at the heart of Japan by hitting Tokyo, he was now faced with the daunting task of defeating Japan. The B-29 project had cost the U.S. taxpayer over $2 billion, making it by far the most expensive project undertaken by the United States during World War II, and it was up to Hansel to prove the B-29 was worth the money. Hansel and 21 Bomber Command continued to launch raids on targets in Japan, using the B-29's high-altitude performance to its fullest, bombing at altitudes of over 30,000 feet. Unfortunately for Hansel, though, pictures taken after each mission showed that most of the bombs had barely landed within a mile of the target. The winds of the jet stream, which Hansel's men had inadvertently discovered for the first time, tossed the bombs around like paper in a breeze, destroying any hopes Hansel had for accuracy at that altitude. On top of that, maintenance problems plagued the force. Hansel could barely get over a hundred planes flying on any one mission, which decreased his effectiveness. Hansel tried his best to remedy these problems. Changes in tactics, strategy, and ground operations abounded, but nothing Hansel did could fix the main problem, effectiveness. Hap Arnold in Washington, Hansel's direct superior, ordered Hansel to make something happen. Hansel tried, but by January of the next year, 1945, Arnold had had enough, and ordered Curtis LeMay, who at that time was commanding B-29s based in India and China, to fly with his force to the Marianas and take over. Before LeMay arrived, however, Hansel ordered one last mission to Tokyo. This time, flying lower and using more bombers, the mission was a resounding success, destroying the factory targeted and putting it out of operation for what was estimated to be years. However, this success arrived too late to save Hansel's job, as just a few days later, a lone plane landed at Depot Field on Guam, headquarters of the 21st Bomber Command. On board was Hansel's successor and replacement, Curtis LeMay. Hansel offered to join LeMay's staff, but LeMay refused since it would be awkward to have the man who previously had your job advising you and criticizing you. LeMay had been given the same ultimatum from Hap Arnold that Hansel had been given, make the B-29 work or fade into obscurity. All the pressure was on him now, but luckily for Arnold and the 21st Bomber Command, LeMay excelled under pressure. LeMay, now in command of the entire B-29 force, advocated strongly for the capture of Iwo Jima to provide an emergency landing strip for his planes, and a month later, the Marines landed and began the long and bloody process of capturing the island. Meanwhile, LeMay whipped up the maintenance crews into a frenzy on the ground, finding anyone with industrial expertise to streamline the maintenance process. With LeMay's reforms, the maintenance sector of the 21st Bomber Command became a well-drilled and oiled machine, capable of fixing anything from minor scratches to major structural damage in a matter of hours. LeMay lit a fire under the chairs of the Navy and Air Transport Command commanders, responsible for his supply chain in order to make sure he was well supplied, and supervised the construction of new storage dumps, port facilities, airfields, and bases to accommodate all of his command's needs. However, this was all secondary. His main goal was to increase the effectiveness of the bombing. LeMay tried every trick in the book. He fluctuated altitude, changed bomb loads, tried different bombs, developed new defensive formations, instituted training programs for crews, and much more. But nothing stuck. Throughout January and most of February, the accuracy and effectiveness of the bombing missions remained the same. It was becoming clearer by the day to LeMay that Hansel's final success in January had been a fluke, and that a radical change in strategy was needed. One night in February in his headquarters on Guam, LeMay stared blankly at his large map of Japan on the wall, as he had been accustomed to do for some time now. The hours passed by, and slowly, more and more of his staff left the HQ, headed for their tents. But a select few remained, watching as the general sat silently, every so often turning to his desk to jot something down on a piece of paper. Then, all of a sudden, LeMay shot up, looked around on his desk, picked up a sheet of paper, and made a phone call. His staff officers watched as he hung up the phone a minute later and began frantically writing on a spare sheet of paper. LeMay was not taking notes, though. He was making calculations. A few minutes later, LeMay put his pencil down, lit his cigar, and walked out of the headquarters building. He had found his new strategy. He briefed his staff on the plan the next day. The B-29s would fly low, at altitudes of between five and 7,000 feet. They would fly at night and fly alone, not in formation, in order to avoid collisions. They would ditch their defensive guns and the gunners that manned them to save weight and enable them to carry more bombs. And finally, they would not use the standard high-explosive general-purpose bombs. They would use a majority incendiary bomb loadout. The call LeMay had made the night before had been to the ammunition dump. 
He was making sure that there were enough M69 incendiary bombs in the Marianas to fill the bellies of his B-29s for a week straight of firebombing missions. His staff questioned whether or not the new tactic would actually increase effectiveness, and if it would not instead increase losses for LeMay's command. But all agreed that the status quo wasn't working, and that the only way to find out for sure was to try it. LeMay and his staff decided soon thereafter to make Tokyo the target for the first firebombing mission, and while LeMay waited for a dry, windy night over Tokyo, his crews began practicing for the mission ahead. While the crews had not yet been briefed on the change in tactics, their practice missions gave them a hint of what to expect. Crews began flying training missions at night, bombing the Japanese-held island of Rota between Guam and Tinian, at altitudes of only 1 to 2,000 feet. Crews feared for their lives as shrapnel from the bombs passed through the skin of their planes like hot knives through butter. LeMay had deliberately ordered these missions flown much lower than he had planned for those to be flown over Japan in order to get crews accustomed to flying at such low altitudes. Meanwhile, as the crews flew their practice runs over Rota, maintenance crews began working around the clock to get every B-29 in the Marianas ready for combat. LeMay suspended all missions to Japan in order to save as many planes as he could for the big show he was planning. Everyone knew something big was about to happen, but only LeMay's staff knew where and how. However, even LeMay didn't know when, and every day he anxiously awaited the weather forecasts for Japan. February passed and March began with no opportunities showing themselves. But then, on March 8th, the forecast predicted a dry and windy night over Tokyo on the night of the 9th. LeMay told his staff to make final preparations for the mission, which would take place the next night. The die had been cast. It was up to science, luck, and LeMay's airmen to prove whether or not LeMay was correct about his theory. While luck was a major factor, LeMay had made sure to leave as little left to chance as possible in his preparations. He picked as his target the eastern side of downtown Tokyo, specifically the Edogawa neighborhood and the adjoining neighborhoods surrounding the Edo and Arakawa rivers. These neighborhoods, and Japan's cities as a whole, were constructed primarily of wood, paper, and bamboo all three being highly flammable. What's more, these neighborhoods were some of the most densely packed in Japan, with narrow streets and buildings only inches apart making it easier for the fires to spread. LeMay also ordered that the bombers carry a load of 75% incendiary and 25% general purpose bombs. The general purpose bombs would blow up the houses exposing their interiors to the incendiary bombs, as well as tossing debris into the streets to help the blaze travel across them. The E-46 incendiary cluster bomb itself played a role in his thinking. The casing of the bomb was jettisoned about a thousand feet off the ground, allowing 40 M-69 bomblets filled with napalm to independently fall to the ground, starting many small fires which would combine into a major conflagration. LeMay planned to maximize this effect by concentrating the bombing on a somewhat small area. The first wave of bombers would fly at right angles to each other, dropping their bombs on the city in the shape of an X. Then the following waves would each be assigned a quadrant of the X to bomb, ensuring that every quadrant would be equally saturated with fire. The firebombing that was about to be unleashed on Tokyo was anything but arbitrary. LeMay had turned area bombing into a science. The science of death. Japan, and Tokyo in particular, was uniquely vulnerable to this kind of attack. Almost all of Japan's urban areas were constructed of wooden paper, and these cities were packed more densely than anywhere else in the world being constricted to narrow valleys and coastal plains by Japan's mountainous topography. Also, Japan, while having advanced at a meteoric pace in many technologies since the opening of its borders to the west in the 1800s, had not developed an adequate firefighting system. The entire city of Tokyo had less than a hundred fire engines, and all of them dated back to the late 1800s and were hardly able to stop the average house fire, let alone a mass conflagration. Throughout Japan's history, fire had been one of its main domestic enemies, with fires ravaging cities across the country, especially after earthquakes. However, even in the face of these disasters, Japan's leaders had somehow forgotten to improve Japan's firefighting capabilities. The people of Japan had been failed first by their military, for allowing LeMay to get this close, and now by their local authorities for not protecting them against this threat, and LeMay was about to take full advantage of this fact. On the morning of March 9th, the crews of the 21st Bomber Command awoke and were treated to a breakfast of fresh eggs, bacon, potatoes, pancakes, and everything else one could ever want for breakfast. However, unlike for you or I, this was not a joyous occasion, as everyone knew that a bountiful meal meant only one thing. The big show had come. After breakfast, 
the crews proceeded to their morning briefings, passing by thousands of maintenance personnel frantically putting the final touches on the B-29s, preparing them for combat. In their briefing huts on Saipan, Tinian, and Guam, the crews of 325 B-29s were briefed on the mission ahead. The crews weren't surprised by much, but they were angry. Many complained that it was suicide flying that low, that the AAA would make easy work of them, and that the fighters would easily pick off the lone bombers. LeMay knew that the Japanese had no such night fighters, and that the AAA would likely be a non-factor, and the staff assured the crews of that much. But then, they announced that the B-29s would be flying unarmed and without gunners. Then the crews broke into a frenzy. The crews thought that LeMay had finally gone insane, and it was clear on every crewman's face just how angry he was. However, orders were orders, and LeMay's men sat there and resigned themselves to their perceived fate. Once the briefings were over, the crews proceeded to their B-29s and began making the necessary arrangements before their evening date with destiny. While in the briefing room, the crews had, for the most part, acted calmly. When they reached their planes and saw the maintenance crews removing their guns, many simply refused to let the maintenance crews near the planes. Most failed in the face of pressure from high-ranking officers making the rounds of the planes, but some managed to sneak their guns and gunners past the prying eyes of their superiors. However, with the extra weight, the flight engineers and navigators needed to be spot on with their calculations, or otherwise, the B-29s would have to glide the last couple hundred miles back to base, a feat that was impossible to achieve. For the rest of the afternoon, the crews killed the time with conversation, card games, and relaxation in their temporary home in tropical paradise. Then, finally, at around 4.45 p.m., Shimoro Standard Time, on March 9, 1945, the crews of 325 B-29s boarded their planes and began their pre-flight checks. The first dozen or so B-29s to take off would be those based on Guam. These bombers, designated as Pathfinders, would be the first wave, the ones responsible for drawing the fiery X over Tokyo. Among these Pathfinders was included a plane carrying General Tommy Powers, LeMay's designated leader for the raid, as LeMay himself had been prohibited from flying into combat by Hap Arnold. After dropping his bombs, General Powers would observe the raid, his plane circling over the city throughout the night, reporting back to LeMay on every aspect of the raid. By 5.20, all the checks had been completed, and the 90 Guam-based B-29s, with the dozen Pathfinders in the lead, began starting up their engines and taxiing toward the runways. General Powers' plane was the first to take off. LeMay and his staff watched from their jeeps sitting astride the runway as the B-29 lumbered down, slowly picking up speed until, finally, with only a small amount of runway left, it lurched skyward and into the wild blue yonder, which was already beginning to dim with the sun dipping low in the sky. General Power's superfortress was followed by another one every 30 seconds. So began the deadliest bombing raid in history. It was 5.36 p.m., March 9th, 1945. About half an hour later, on the island of Tinian, around 150 B-29s sat at the end of runways and on the taxiways of north and west fields, waiting for the go-ahead from the control center to take off. Just then, General Power's plane flew overhead, followed by more B-29s from the Guam group. Tinian Tower gave the go-ahead order, and the Tinian B-29s began taking off at around 6.10 p.m. Two miles to the south, on the island of Saipan, 90 more B-29s got the go-ahead as the Guam group passed overhead a couple minutes later. For another two hours, B-29s would continue to take off and turn north toward Japan. This staggering was intentional, as it would further hamper Japanese firefighting efforts as new fires would pop up at any time as the bombers made their runs one by one. By 8.30 p.m., all 325 B-29s selected for the raid were airborne. On board were just over a thousand Americans, most barely in their 20s all on a date with destiny as they turned north and began their 1,500-mile trek toward the Empire. Around four hours into the flight, the bombers passed by the island of Iwo Jima, which marked their halfway point. As they flew by, they could see the island being illuminated by star shells fired by the surrounding warships. Large portions of the island were on fire, and flashes of light indicated where firefights between Marines and defending Japanese troops were ongoing, as the battle for the island was only around halfway done. From Iwo Jima, the B-29s made a slight course adjustment to fly directly to Tokyo. The planned bomb run would take them over the Chiba Peninsula, into Tokyo Bay, and then over the Edogawa neighborhood, which was their target before turning south and flying over Yokohama and Yokosuka back out to sea. However, with Iwo Jima being 700 miles away, 
if the navigator was off by as much as one degree, the superfort would make landfall over Japan dozens of miles away. This was a best case scenario. If he was off by even more, the B-29 could burn too much fuel and not be able to make it back to base, or even worse, get lost in the middle of the North Pacific. The B-29's navigators had a very important job, and even in 1945, all they had to go off of were star readings and dead reckoning. As the B-29s flew toward Tokyo, the attention of the crew was firmly fixed in the navigator, using a sextant to make calculations at his station. If he were to fail, they were all goners. It was 10.15 p.m., March 9th, 1945. Meanwhile, in Tokyo, which was one hour ahead of Guam despite being on roughly the same longitude, it was past 11 p.m., and the city was beginning to quiet down for the night. The 6.7 million residents of Tokyo were either asleep or on their way home. Aside from a select few government and military personnel, business had ceased for the day. Despite the air raids in prior months, the city was not on high alert. Japanese radio stations were operating normally, with some crews using their signals to home in on their target. The streetlights were on, homes not blacked out, and the fire department not on standby. Squadrons of defensive fighters were sitting without fuel in their hangars, their pilots having gone to bed for the day. The only defenses that were manned were the anti-aircraft guns, but they had all been targeted for high-altitude attacks, not the low-altitude attack that was coming for them. It would take much precious time from the defenders to both realize this and rectify the error, further reducing their abysmal effectiveness. The Japanese were expecting LeMay to use the B-29s for what they had been designed for, high-altitude, daylight, strategic precision bombing. Ironically, LeMay was using the B-29 for the exact opposite of what it had been designed for. However, when the original plan doesn't work, you have to improvise. What exactly was in the Edogawa neighborhood that was worth obliterating the whole place for anyway? Well, on top of the number of factories and smaller assembly plants contained within, the homes themselves were a target, since Japan had a large cottage industry. The Japanese economy was highly decentralized, with the majority of goods being produced in home workshops even into the 1940s. These smaller workshops produced a wide range of products from food to hardware to components. When Japan began gearing up for war, Many of these workshops began producing strategic goods like bullets, guns, gunpowder, rations, uniforms, and a motley assortment of other things the military needed to wage war. What's more, some began producing vehicle and aircraft parts, which they would then send to the major factories for final assembly. The vast majority, nearly 60%, of Japan's production base was not in factories. Rather, it was in people's homes. The unfortunate reality was that, in order to knock out Japan's ability to wage war, LeMay had to target homes and residential areas, not just the factories. Back on Guam, LeMay sat in his headquarters, staring blankly at the map and photo-covered walls of the planning room. He was alone, save for the company of his public relations officer, St. Clair McElway, as LeMay had given all the officers permission to sleep for the night. McElway, however, had insisted that he sweat out the mission with LeMay in the headquarters. The two sat quietly, attempting to make small talk. Neither were the type for such a thing, and so every few sentences the conversation died again, only to be started once more a minute or two later. LeMay was tense. His job, his reputation, the B-29 program, and most importantly the lives of over a thousand of his airmen were all on the line. In an effort to kill time before the first reports from Powers came in, LeMay attempted to once again revive the dead conversation. LeMay brought up his wife and daughter back home in Ohio. This was unusual for him, as he almost never talked about his family while on the job. McElway later noted that LeMay had no hobbies. Beyond games of medicine ball to keep fat off a body that tends toward fat, games of poker to relax as best he can, a mind that actually never stops thinking about how to do the job better the next day, and a little reading, mostly fairly serious, to improve a mind he considers inadequate. They talked for a moment, but the conversation quickly died again. Silence filled the brightly lit command room once more. LeMay looked at his watch. It was around 11.50 p.m. LeMay, still looking at his watch, made a suggestion to McElway. We won't get bombs away for another half hour. Would you like a Coca-Cola? I can sneak into my quarters without waking up the other guys and get two Coca-Colas, and we can drink them in my car. That'll kill most of the half hour. McElway agreed, and they drove over to LeMay's tent in the general's jeep. LeMay tiptoed in, and a few seconds later re-emerged with a Coke in each hand. The two drove away to a quiet part of the base and began sipping on their sodas. As they did, at around 11.55 p.m., Guam time, 
1,000 Americans and 325 B-29s were nearing the Japanese coastline. A couple of hours had passed since the B-29s had passed Iwo Jima, and by now they were close enough to Japan to pick up local radio stations. The Japanese government had banned all things American, including certain types of clothing, sports like baseball, and all American cultural material, especially music. However, as one of the B-29s approaching Tokyo tuned in to the local radio, the crew heard a familiar song playing that should not have been, but was quite fitting for what was about to come to pass soon thereafter. The song Smoke Gets In Your Eyes by Gertrude Neeson. Not long after picking up the radio signals, the lead B-29 began spotting a faint glow on the horizon. A few minutes later, the dark shapes of the Japanese coastline came into view. Navigators made final calculations in order to make sure they were on target. Half of the Pathfinder B-29s in the first wave turned slightly to the northeast, making landfall to the north of Tokyo in the region where Narita International Airport sits today. The other half followed the normal flight path over the Chiba Peninsula. They would fly at right angles to each other on their bomb run in order to create that planned fiery X over Tokyo. The Japanese picked up the incoming radon radar, while the lead planes were still far out at sea, and the Japanese army began scrambling their small night fighter force. The two dozen Japanese fighters were deployed about 10 miles out to sea in order to try and intercept the formation before it could reach Tokyo. However, these Japanese night fighters were not equipped with radar like most other night fighters of the period. They only had a powerful light on the nose. Finding a lone B-29 in the dark, over the ocean, would be almost impossible. Dozens more fighters, not designed for night fighting, were also scrambled. They hoped that the ground-based searchlights would illuminate B-29s, enabling them to spot them and shoot them down. However, the Japanese had failed to make effective ways of coordinating their defense, and there was very little communication ability between the searchlights and the planes. All these factors combined to make the Japanese army's air defenses almost useless against the incoming force. Tokyo authorities activated air raid sirens at around 1 a.m. Tokyo time, 12 a.m. Guam time, but the citizens of Tokyo had grown used to these alarms after months of false alarms and ineffective raids, which they had come to call mail runs. Few paid any notice to the now common occurrence. A few minutes later, the sirens faded away, and the people of Tokyo went back to sleep. No laughing friends bride, tears I cannot hide. At midnight, General Powers and the first B-29s had arrived at the initial point over the Chiba Peninsula and had begun their bomb runs over Tokyo Bay toward the city. Each plane was assigned to a different altitude in order to avoid collisions in the dark. The two sets of planes, the Pathfinders, began their northward and westward bombing runs at 90 degree angles to each other. Powers' B-29 was the first to drop its bombs. After dropping its payload, the plane turned and began climbing in order to get a better view. Minutes passed and General Powers watched Tokyo from the cockpit of Snatchblatch. Powers was anxious to see if the other B-29s had made it to the target. Since LeMay had ordered strict radio silence, his only way of knowing was to see the bombs going off. Then, at 12.25 a.m. on March 10, 1945, General Powers saw his proof in the form of a group of small fires flaring up in the target area. The inferno had begun. Within minutes of the first bomb falling, more and more of the Pathfinder B-29s made their runs, and soon a large fiery X stretching for miles across downtown Tokyo was clearly visible from the air. By 12.45 a.m., the B-29s from Tinian and Saipan had started to arrive and had begun bombing their assigned quadrants. Already at this early stage, it was clear from above that a great conflagration had begun. Firefighters rushed to the scene as people were rudely awoken by the loud drone of Curtis Wright R-3350 engines passing by low overhead. The M-69s released their clusters of E-46 bomblets. The bomblets, essentially wooden sticks covered in magnesium and napalm, ignited in the air and made curtains of flame hundreds of yards long as they fell, creating an effect not unlike a meteor shower. The deadliest part of these bomblets was their quietness, as when they hit the ground they did not explode and only sounded like a stick hitting the ground. 
Fire started quickly as the bomblets burned at over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Firefighters tried their best to douse the fires using buckets and small hoses, but the napalm that fueled these bomblets could not be extinguished by water alone. It required CO2 foam and other more advanced firefighting tools the Tokyo Fire Department did not have access to. Tokyo's fire department had trained their personnel to isolate and contain fires, but their strategy could not and did not factor in the possibility of fire surrounding them. And as more B-29s roared overhead, that's exactly what began to happen all over eastern Tokyo. Soon the firefighters' main goal shifted from containing the fires to finding escape routes for the thousands of trapped civilians. Tens of thousands took to the streets in little more than their sleeping attire, leaving almost everything behind. Many tried to seek shelter, but Tokyo's leaders had decided years before not to build many air raid shelters in order to not make people worry. Their strategy had worked. People had not worried about air attack. But now that it was upon them, the people of Tokyo had nowhere to hide. Overhead, more and more B-29s began their bombing runs on the city. Flying through the intense flak, the B-29s rattled and groaned with every near miss. Searchlight beams crisscrossed the sky, tracers hurtled skyward, and fiery streaks from incendiary bomblets rained toward the city below. The B-29s were flying so low that they could see, illuminated by the street lamps and raging fires, the hundreds of thousands of fleeing civilians in the streets. Bombardiers steered the planes away from already burning areas, dropping their bombs instead on areas nearby the inferno in order to start new blazes and help the main fire grow. As the fire grew and heated up the air above, pockets of air shot skyward, making the sky over Tokyo a turbulent mess. Planes flying over after the initial phase of the attack were tossed and turned like paper in the wind, being thrown hundreds of feet in any direction, some losing over 500 feet in altitude in little more than a second before being pushed over a thousand feet upward a few seconds later. Back on board Snatchblatch, the B-29 chosen to observe the raid, General Tommy Powers took out a map of Tokyo and, taking a seat on the floor between the pilot and co-pilot, began marking down on his map the areas of Tokyo he observed to be burning. It soon became apparent, however, that he would not be able to do so with any precision, as such a large area had been set alight that he could no longer distinguish one neighborhood from another. The best he could do was circle a large area and label it as destroyed. General Powers put away his map and began simply staring at the city. The pilot, sitting next to him, recalled the general muttering under his breath, Poor bastards. Poor bastards. Over and over. It was 1.30 a.m., Guam time, on Saturday, March 10th, 1945. Back on the ground, those who could not escape the city as the inferno surrounded them sought shelter anywhere they could find it. Hundreds jumped in ditches, dug foxholes, or dived into the myriad of rivers and canals that ran through the city. None of these measures worked. As more and more buildings were set alight, temperatures soared from below freezing to over 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, quite literally face-melting heat. Those hiding in ditches and foxholes burned to death or suffocated because of the fire's rapid consumption of oxygen. The thousands who had jumped into the rivers began to be boiled alive as the rivers became superheated with the air. People trying to escape had to endure third-degree burns on their entire body as their clothes burned off, glass and street lamps began to melt, and the asphalt below their feet began to boil. One survivor noted later that while she was standing in a park seeking shelter, she saw the lamps and electric poles around her beginning to glow red-hot before then bending or falling over. The only successful survivors, like her, were those who fled to large open parks and fields. Because there was little that could catch fire in a field, the fire simply bypassed them, leaving those lucky enough or smart enough to remain within relatively unscathed save for some burns. The burns were bad, sure, but better than death by any stretch. The same air currents that tossed around the B-29s above them blew with hurricane-force winds on the ground. Small tornadoes caused by the fires began to pop up all over the burning section of the city. The fire, desperate for air, created a vacuum, dragging cars, animals, homes, and fleeing civilians back into the blaze, literally picking them up off their feet. The fire was only an hour old and already tens of thousands of Japanese civilians had died in a myriad of unimaginable and horrifying ways. The fires spread from the Edogawa district in all directions, and by the one-hour mark had engulfed most of eastern Tokyo, over 16 of the 27 square miles that Tokyo covered at the time. The fires burned so hot and so bright that B-29s flying back from the Marianas could see the glow for hundreds of miles, well beyond the horizon. Japanese flat gunners no longer needed the searchlights to illuminate the planes, as the fires reflecting off their shiny silver undersides revealed their positions easily. However, as the fires engulfed more and more, the flak began to wane off as the guns themselves were being overrun by the flames. And with them, 
the last real obstacle between the B-29s and their objective, other than the turbulent air. Crews flying overhead observed the carnage below, one man likening it to the ninth circle of hell in Dante's Inferno. Airmen later recalled smelling the scent of burnt flesh as they passed overhead, one comparing it to the smell of burnt pork. The air was filled with the shrieks and cries of civilians, the roar of aircraft engines flying low overhead, the din of the blazing inferno that had engulfed the city, and the crashing of wood, metal, and stone that signaled the demise of yet another building. Fleeing Japanese looked up on occasion to get a glimpse of their attackers, only to see the reflection of their burning homes on the shining silver bellies of the B-29s. At the nearby Imperial Palace, meanwhile, hundreds of soldiers armed themselves with buckets, crowbars, and shovels in order to protect the palace should the fire attempt to destroy it as well. The Emperor was rushed from his quarters into an air raid shelter, one of the few in the city which had been constructed under the palace for the Imperial family. The Emperor made the move first, soon followed by most of his furniture and belongings. While he would in the months to come spend much of his day outside the bunker, it would become his home for the remainder of the war, and for a while afterward. While the Emperor sat safe in his shelter surrounded by hundreds of soldiers ready to fight off the fires, his subjects were not as lucky. Most were either dead or evacuating. However, as new fires sprang up around the city, many areas became surrounded by fire, the people trapped within having no hope for survival save divine intervention. The heat of the blaze was so intense it could now jump streets, fields, and even rivers. People raced away from the city as fast as they could, but the flames followed them, and in many cases caught up to the fleeing civilians. Thousands, realizing they could not outrun the fire, jumped into the Arakawa River, only to be boiled alive as the flames jumped the river and continued sprinting through the streets on the other side. The conflagration had grown too large to be stopped by human means. Even the best fire departments of the day, like the New York Fire Department, could have done little to even slow it down. Nature had taken over, and it would be nature that would end it. The fire continued to run wild until it reached the outskirts of the city in the north, where it ran out of things to burn, and in the west, simply ran out of steam before reaching the Imperial Palace as the winds, having changed direction, began blowing it back in the direction from whence it had come. By 2.30 a.m., most of the B-29s had dropped their bombs and turned for home. General Powers, observing the raid from the B-29 Snatchblatch, had seen enough, and he too turned for Guam. The bombers followed the same path they had taken to Tokyo back to base, flying by Iwo Jima once more. A number of B-29s that had been damaged by flak or suffered mechanical malfunctions landed on Iwo Jima to repair. The airfield had only been captured days earlier, and was still in rough shape and sometimes under Japanese fire, but it was still better than ditching in the ocean hundreds of miles from the Marianas. By 3.30 a.m., all of the B-29s were on their return journeys. All, that is, except for a few unlucky crews. Those living around Mount Fubo, northeast of Tokyo, were disturbed in their sleep by three distinct explosions in the early morning hours. None of the populace was injured. However, when curious villagers approached the fires to investigate, they found that three B-29s had crashed into the mountainside. Not much is known about how it happened, but all three planes had rammed into the mountain at full speed due to navigational error. The planes were not flying in formation, and each had ended up there independently. Unfortunately for the 36 men on board the three planes, none survived the 250-mile-an-hour impact. Another 11 B-29s were either shot down by flak or forced to ditch at sea because of damage. Some of the men were rescued, including a crew that ditched alongside an uninhabited island north of Saipan, who were found a few days later. The rest, though, were lost. 96 American airmen in total. At around 5 a.m., Mariana's time, the first B-29s began landing in the pre-dawn darkness on Guam, Tinian, and Saipan. All were low on fuel, some running out of gas while taxiing back to their revetments. Ground crew and staff personnel rushed to the planes to inspect damage and to talk to the crews. The planes, even after hours of flying, still reeked of wood smoke and of the faint smell of burnt flesh. Ash, soot, and smoke had blackened their once silver undersides. Crewmen climbed down the ladders to terra firma with their hands shaking in horror. They had witnessed the deadliest night in human history, and would not soon forget it. The crews went directly from their planes to the briefing huts, where intelligence officers interviewed each crew about the mission before returning to their barracks for much-needed sleep. There was no sleep for General Powers, though, only answers, as he reported directly to LeMay's headquarters to report the results to LeMay. The mission was a resounding success. Most of the bombers, 279 of the 325 that started, made it to the target and bombed it, a new record. 16.4 square miles of Tokyo had been leveled, with its thousands of workshops, dozens of assembly plants, and some factories taken with it into oblivion. While neither Powers nor LeMay knew the casualties yet, it was obvious to all that they were enormous. 
As the sun peeked over the horizon and shone on Tokyo, it unveiled a scene of unparalleled carnage. The entire eastern half of the city had been reduced to a moonscape, with jagged metal beams sticking upright through the ashes being the only indication that a home had once stood there. Save for a few concrete structures, no building was left standing. As people returned to their homes to recover what little was left of their belongings, they passed over rivers, clogged up by bodies, the water apparently unable to move past the dam of the deceased. The streets were filled with broken glass, as the heat had broken nearly all the windows, the wind sending the fragments into the streets. While tiptoeing around the debris and broken glass, they found the charred remains of friends and loved ones, most in unnatural contorted positions made possible only by the intense pain caused by the heat and lack of breathable air. Drooping street lamps, warped and melted by the heat, marked out in the rubble where the streets used to be. Similarly warped cars appeared on the streets in occasion, though in Japan there was not enough fuel or money to allow most people to have cars. One of those few, though, happened to be driving through part of the city that day. Emperor Hirohito toured the leveled portions of the city in his car, witnessing the horror for himself. Most in his position would have immediately surrendered upon seeing the horrors that had been wrought on his subjects, but for reasons that are debated by historians to this day, the emperor instead returned to his palace, went back to his bunker, and remained there until the end of the war, never appearing in public. We will never know how many people died that night, but estimates range from 100,000 on the low end, the numbers acknowledged by the American and Japanese authorities after the raid, to over 250,000, a number supported by later research by historians. Whatever the number actually is, the night of March 9th and 10th, 1945, the night Tokyo burned, was the deadliest night in human history. On top of the over 200,000 dead, another 300,000 were wounded, and over a million more made homeless. Back on Guam, Curtis Lemay and his staff, impressed by the results, decided to keep up the pressure and launched a fire blitz on Japan. The next day, March 11th, 310 B-29s took off to bomb Nagoya. They met little resistance, and 92% of them were able to bomb their primary targets, and only one plane was lost. However, because of the unfavorable weather, and Nagoya being a smaller city, only two square miles of the city were destroyed. Two days later, on March 13th, 298 B-29s attacked the city of Osaka, Japan's second largest just behind Tokyo, destroying eight square miles of that city. Only two B-29s were lost. After allowing a two-day pause in order to let ground crews repair and upkeep the planes, LeMay ordered another attack on the city of Kobe, just west of Osaka. 330 B-29s took part, destroying three square miles of the city. Two days later, the B-29s returned to Nagoya, not satisfied with their earlier destruction, and 310 of them managed to burn another three square miles to add to their earlier total of two. LeMay, wanting to keep up the pressure, began planning yet another firebombing mission and called the ammunition dumps on Guam in order to find out how many bombs he had left. The answer both surprised and infuriated him. There were none. LeMay would have to put a halt to the firebombing missions after only a week and a half of destruction because he had literally thrown every incendiary bomb he had at the Japanese, over 44,000 of them. In just over a week, the B-29s had leveled 33 square miles of Japanese urban areas, over half of which, 16.4 square miles, had been from just the one raid on Tokyo on March 9th. It was to date the deadliest and most destructive bombing campaign in recorded history, and once LeMay got more incendiary bombs, which were at that moment being frantically shipped to him by the Navy, it would only grow more and more destructive. As of March 10th, 1945, it had been 2,801 days since Japan had invaded China in 1937, sparking a war that would eventually set half of Asia alight. Now, it was Japan's turn as the world, represented by LeMay and 21st Bomber Command, came to bring its revenge. Japan had sown the wind, and now they would reap the whirlwind, except LeMay was already bringing more destruction to Japan than that quote's originator, Arthur Harris, could ever dream of bringing to Germany. The combination of the effective firebombs, the huge bomb loads of the B-29, the fire-prone cities of Japan, and the willpower to take advantage of these facts brought by Curtis LeMay had proved and would continue to prove that a perfect storm had come to whip Japan. In the past, Japan had been protected by wind and flame, typhoons saving them from the Mongols, and the flames of gunpowder protecting them from the Russians. But now they had both left the hands of the Japanese and were now being harnessed by their enemies to bring destruction on a scale hitherto unheard of. 
To put it in perspective, the 32 destroyed square miles, if applied to an American city like, say, New York, would equate to all of the 22 square miles of Manhattan, plus another 14 miles of Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Queens leveled completely. Imagine New York City virtually wiped off the face of the earth in only a week, and LeMay wasn't even close to calling it quits. Some may think that this all came out of the blue, that this was nothing more than an unwarranted slaughter, but that is not the case. In the history of warfare, the deadliest part of a battle is never the actual fighting itself. It's the retreat afterward, where, in ancient medieval times, the victorious army would pursue their fleeing enemies and kill any stragglers. In modern combat, this changed as battles became deadlier and deadlier. However, the trend continued, but no longer on the scale of a single battle, rather of an entire war. In modern war, the deadliest part of a conflict is not at the beginning or in the middle. Rather, it is at the very end. The cause? Desperation. In the American Civil War, Generals Grant and Sherman made calculated decisions that resulted in heavy casualties, but ended in victory for the Union. Quote, I will fight it out on this line if it takes all summer, Grant said at Spotsylvania. The resulting battle, and those following, being the deadliest campaign of the war for both the Union and Confederate armies. General Sherman, asking for permission to embark on his march to the sea, stated, quote, I can make the march and make Georgia howl, end quote. It would go on to be one of the deadliest and most brutal campaigns of the Civil War. These two decisions came about because both Grant and Sherman had seen four years of the brutality of war and wanted desperately to see it end. To that end, they were willing to make once unimaginable decisions out of desperation. In the same way, commanders in both America and Japan, desperate to either end the war or force the other side to negotiate, made decisions that boggle the peacetime mind in order to bring about results. You can question the morality of these decisions, but you cannot question the results. Already in this series, we've seen General Tomoyuki Yamashita's delaying tactics and deadly defensive lines on Luzon, and a last-ditch attempt by the Japanese to sink the American fleet off Leyte. On top of this, we also saw General Kurebayashi's order to kill ten Americans before dying on Iwo, resulting in one of the bloodiest battles of the Pacific War. General Curtis LeMay was not by any means the originator of this desperation phase. He was simply jumping on the bandwagon. The tenacious final stand of the Japanese Empire, playing out over and over on island after island, would ultimately end with a brutal and bloody invasion to take the home islands if the U.S. were to keep on its present course. It was a calculated decision by the Japanese made in order to force the Americans to negotiate. With that in mind, American commanders had a decision to make. Bear witness and be responsible for the final, climactic, and bloodiest campaign of World War II and see a war that had, in the Pacific, been raging for eight years continue on for possibly two more, or, instead, by any means, bring an end to the costly fighting, even if it meant the destruction of Japan. What LeMay and his subordinates had begun may be morally questionable in the hindsight of over 75 years, but if you put yourself in the 1945 mindset of LeMay and his staff, you could begin to see the appeal of such actions. These are not things you do on a whim. These are options of last resort. The kamikazes, the last stands, and now the firebombings were all done out of desperation. And as the American forces inched closer and closer to Japan on November 1st, the scheduled start of Operation Downfall and the beginning of the invasion of Japan approached, American and Japanese leaders would continue to abandon morality and pursue strategies based only off of their effectiveness. None of this moral debate was going through the minds of America's leaders, though. For even as smoke still rose from the ashes of Tokyo, American military leaders were planning their next step. Key to the invasion of Japan would be overwhelming air superiority. To that end, America needed bases much closer to Japan, from which they could base thousands of shorter-range aircraft that would soon be transferring to the Pacific Theater from Europe after the surrender of Germany. Thousands of B-17s and B-24s, along with many smaller P-47s and P-38s, would make the journey from England and France and become part of the United States Far East Air Force, which would be commanded by Tui Spatz, the current leader of all U.S. air units in Europe. In order to do this, the Americans needed a large base within a short flight of Japan, and to U.S. planners, only one island fit the bill, Okinawa. With its flat terrain and large surface area, it would provide an ideal base for these shorter-ranged craft. There was just one downside. If short-ranged aircraft could hit Japan from Okinawa, 
the reverse was also true. The upcoming battle for Okinawa would be the bloodiest and most difficult of the war for the U.S. Navy, as a torrent of kamikazes coming direct from Japan would make the divine wind a reality. On top of that, over a hundred thousand Japanese troops were waiting for just such an invasion, and their commander, General Mitsuru Ushijima, had been taking notes after the battles of Iwo Jima and Luzon, where the Americans had taken heavy casualties, and was preparing to exact a terrible toll on the invaders. The battle for Okinawa, on land and at sea, would be the longest and bloodiest battle of the Pacific War. It would be a battle of attrition, a struggle of wills. Would the U.S. crumble under the immense pressure of their losses and, fearing what might occur in an invasion of Japan itself, decide to negotiate? Or would the American spearhead, even if blunted, come crashing down on Kyushu come November? As all this crossed the minds of the American commanders, General LeMay, back on Guam, wrote a letter to his wife. Dear Helen, still no mail. You must have tired out with all your work, or the airplanes have stopped flying. Easter Sunday slipped up on us, and I didn't realize it was here until this morning. I suppose you and Janie were dressed in new clothes for the parade, in spite of the rationing. Our Easter outfit was khaki, stained with sweat and red dirt. We broke all records for all the Air Forces last month for sorties per airplane, sorties flown, etc., and we are just getting started. I'm going to be more unpopular with the Japs than I am now, and they are already screaming their heads off. Happy Easter. Love, Kurt. As it happened... That Easter day, April 1st, 1945, would mark the beginning of the battle for Okinawa. For as LeMay wrote that letter, six divisions, three army and three marine, landed on the island. Okinawa was widely considered by the Japanese to be one of the home islands. With this invasion and the beginning of the firebombing campaign, the preliminary stage of the Pacific War had ended. The battle for Japan had begun. That's it for this episode of LeMay's Inferno on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I've been your host, Carter McNish. Join us next time when we cover the longest and bloodiest battle in the Pacific War, the Battle of Okinawa. 